For more than 200 years, a small office has operated on the state floor of the White House Executive Residence. Known as the Usher's Office, its mission is to accommodate the personal needs of the first family. He or she is the individual who spends an enormous amount of time, not just around the president's family, but the president, him or herself. My guest today is Christopher Emery, the former White House usher for Presidents Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and Bill Clinton. He served 29 years in the federal government, maintaining a top secret clearance while working for the White House, U.S. Congress, Department of Homeland Security, and the Department of Justice. Today, he's a published author of two books, his memoir, White House Usher, Stories from the Inside, which details his time managing the White House and his latest wonderful mystery novel entitled White House Usher, Who Killed the President? Chris is going to join us. And boy, is that going to be a fun conversation coming up next on the Michael Steele podcast. Well, you know, every once in a while, folks, you get that blast from the past that and you go down memory lane and you remember old friendships and the battles and the and the the drinks <laughs> after the battles. Uh, and and it's it's really one of those moments for me uh, to welcome an old friend to uh, to the podcast, uh, Chris Emery, uh, noted author former White House usher, all around just a good guy. Welcome, man. Michael, great to see you. It's you, so good seeing you. You speak of battles. I don't know that we lost any. No, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. We did not. We 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 won governorships and legislative races, and uh, we did all kinds of good things and a lot of fun, and it's so nice to see you. And it's nice to be able to uh, to talk about your success as someone who's been uh, inside the room uh, where it happened uh, and and be a part of America's story and history um, in the way that you served uh, both presidents and the country. Um, and I just find that very, very compelling. You've got a new book out, which we're going to get into, White House Usher, story uh story i mean sorry white house ushers who killed the president stories from the inside is the first book but the latest is who killed the president but let's start at the beginning because that's always a good place to sort of give people a feel for chris emory and your narrative um you were a white house usher which is a job that a lot of people don't know exists right tell us about that part of your story how you became an usher what is a white house usher right. you know and 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 how does it all kind of weave itself in and out of the story of presidents well absolutely and michael I, you know i realized this the other day and i don't know what made me think of it but i am a, a real white house insider yes you are <laughs> more so than anybody else that says they are which hopefully after this, you'll everyone will understand why. But but the usher's office is a very unique, rare office. It's in the inside the White House. It's been around for almost 200 years. And it is actually the management office for the White House, the home of the first family, and the 18 acres of grounds that surround the house. 
And the ushers are there to primarily make the, that building feel like a home to the first family, not an office and not a museum. Mm -hmm. uh, the ushers, and I happen to be the 18th one in history. Uh, so they, they stay around for a while. They stay around a while, yeah. Uh, but I, uh, I spent eight, just over eight years in the White House. I worked for President Reagan, President H.W. Bush, and President Clinton. And I just had the most amazing job in the world. Uh, my job was to uh, take care of the personal needs of the president and and first family. Right. And and the office, as I said, has been around for 200 years. The name Usher really derived from uh, pre-colonial uh, England. Uh, the Ushers were the men that took care of the great estates of, of the, the rich and famous people that lived in, in England at the time. Um so uh, fast forward uh, quite a while till when that was created. It was actually in the first floor plan of the White House in uh, 1800, 1792, actually. Uh, there was something called the Porter's Lodge, which became the usher's office. Mm -hmm. And when I say I was the 18th, there, there were uh, actually the 18th. That, that count starts from about 1845. So it, it, it's just a, an amazing job where we have a daily interaction with the first family. Uh, I get calls from the president for anything. It could be, you know, cancel my trip to uh, Camp David this weekend. Or, hey, you know what? I got the Baltimore Orioles. So I want them to come play some, you know, catch on the South Grounds. Right. Set it up. <laughs> <laughs> Make it happen. But it, but it's just, it's the most amazing job that that really is, is and there's not much about written about it or known about it because that's uh, the, the, the privacy of the first family is paramount. And as far as ushers go, there have been three others that have written books. I happen to be the first one that's written two books. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the history of the White House, it, it's a it's a very close uh, for security and for privacy reasons. There's not much known about the House. What? So you've had three presidents that you that you were there for: um, Reagan, uh, Bush forty one, and Clinton. Each of those individuals and certainly their first ladies mm -hmm. um, and families writ large were very di different. Um, you know, you take a, a Nancy Reagan on one end and uh, a Hillary Clinton on the other, and then you put in Barbara Bush, who <laughs> everybody who, who knew Barbara Bush knew, yeah, you don't mess with mama, right? You know, she was just, <laughs> she was just that kind of very protective of, of her husband and the family for sure. How how would you assess um, the personalities of the house under each of those on each of those uh, presidents and first ladies? Well, it's very different. Uh, fortunately for President Reagan, you know, it's really interesting. Reagan, being older, had much older uh, department secretaries and, and directors and assistants, um, and and I'll I'll explain why I point that out. Uh, the Reagans were old Hollywood. Right. They entertained. I mean, I met Frank Sinatra. I met Jimmy Stewart. I met Gregory Peck. I mean, that, that was the crowd that they hung out with. It was pretty right. cool. Um, so, and the Reagans loved uh, older music. They liked Hodge, Hodge and Hart, you know, 19, right. 1930 kind of thing. Whereas, uh, you know, when President Bush came in, he was younger. Also more into, uh, as far as the celebrities, it was more into like athletics, you know, uh, Nolan Ryan, right. uh, you know, Herschel Walker when he was a football player or after he was a football player. Um, 
uh, Chrissy Everett, thing, things like that. And and the Bushes were a little more active. Uh, I, I should back up a little bit there. You know, President Reagan uh, went to bed late and got up at a reasonable time, and he was in the Oval Office after eight o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. Uh, there were times I would take the schedule up to the president late at night, and he'd be there, President Reagan, in his big government issue, black glasses, wearing a robe with a pile of papers on his lap that he's going through. And he was working till, you know, 10, 11 at night. Uh, president Bush, on the other hand, would get up at five in the morning and he'd read five newspapers and then have his coffee. And it was just a little more active, a little, he was a little more, you know, the day started earlier. Right. Uh, with the Clintons and the Clintons being much younger, they were more into the 90210 era of, of celebrities. And right. Things. Right. Uh, but they knew how to have fun. They had a lot of parties and uh, being younger, they had younger friends and, and it was it was a very different White House. But the, the point I make about Reagan having an older staff, you know, Michael, it was, it was Reagan's staff were there for one reason. President Reagan. Mm hmm. They were there for the guy, and that's all they thought about. The Bush folks came in. They're a little younger, and some of them are starting to think, hey, you know what? I could have a real career after this. Right. So the focus wasn't so much on, on the president. Interesting. A little bit on them. Uh, the Clinton folks got in. It was, <laughs> I got to tell you, it was absolute chaos because they were very young, and nobody, nobody really knew the goals or the mission until uh, David Gergen came in. And uh, you, you see David Gergen occasionally now. On yeah, yeah. Gergen came in and he was what was really needed in that White House, you know, the, the, an adult. And uh, he kind of got things focused a little bit for the president. But you had guys like Paul Begala. Uh, you, you had George Stephanopoulos. And, and then, of course, our friend. Um, um, oh, shucks. The, the guy, Mary Madeline's husband. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, uh, Carville. Um, yeah, yeah. You had yeah. those three guys who were who were brilliant for the Clintons, but they were crazy. And and so, you know, with that brilliance and energy came some missteps now and then. But those are the primary differences between the first families. And I should back up to George H.W. Bush. Now, I spent all four years that he was president working for him. So I got to know the Bush family a lot better. Uh, Mrs. Bush, who was absolutely wonderful. Yeah, um, it was just, you know, it was very close. And so um, it was tough when they left. And uh, I have to say that, uh, uh, you know, the Clintons brought in new energy and, and new uh, new goals and, 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 and a little bit of chaos. The Reagans were pretty stable. It's, it, it creates an interesting um, political narrative because a lot of what you're describing is uh, also a lot how their administrations kind of played out. Mm -hmm. you, Reagan's were sort of, you know, uh, they were considered like the imperial presidency. They sort of brought back this regalness and right. sort of formality. Uh, the Bushes were more patrician, but, you know, kind of cool. You know, they they hung out with a lot of the folks that um, were, you know, sort of staples in, in, in various areas of economy and politics and sports um, that people feel it really felt comfortable. And that kind of translated into Bush 43 as well, you know, sort mm -hmm. of the everyman thing, even though uh, 
you did have this sort of upper New England kind of, you know, sort of chin up approach. And the Clintons were like, you know, hey, y'all, we're the party. We're here. <laughs> <laughs> I brought some ripple, you know, and, and uh, it, it's a very and it, it kind of how their administrations played out. And so behind the scenes, you have these stories that involves what are some of your favorite stories about each of these presidents um, and how uh, because I presume in some respects and I'm not you know trying to be chauvinistic or anything like that but uh, typically the, the the first lady is kind of running the White House right she's kind of running the show around the president certainly we knew that about Nancy Reagan very protective about his scheduling his time who came in who didn't um, and I assume that translated into events at the White House from very casual to very formal. Right. What, exactly. is, what are some of the stories that you remember about those times that, uh, again, not wanting to breach any uh, privacy or family uh, secrets, although mm -hmm. that would be good. I, I'm not <laughs> stop you from doing that. Um, but you've written a lot about it and you, you've talked a lot about those uh those events share some of those with us sure well my my first book uh stories from the inside is really a memoir about my time it, it, it'll teach people about the usher's office the day-to-day -day operation and there's some anecdotes and and some great things I've, I've included in there but there's nothing in that book that would ever embarrass anybody in any first family you know michael i had offers from uh publishers which won't be named that offered me a six-figure uh, advance and then they told me what I would write right mm -hmm. and I explained well that's not really what this is about I I, I want to write a, a a nice book about what this the function of this strange obscure office and what they do and some of the neat things that we got involved with I think each president and I have different stories and and I've I've cherished some of the private time with those each all three right and that'll never see the the light of day I'm never going to talk about any of that but the uh you know president reagan was was bigger than life i mean his stature i mean for a man that age much younger than our current president but uh he he actually was really in shape and a lot of people don't realize um after I mean, this guy was still splitting wood back at his yes. at his ranch <laughs> well i'll tell you a little story um well after he was uh the assassination attempt where the bullet just missed his heart right one of the things they put him on was a heavy regiment of weightlifting. And so we had a universal gym right above the usher's office. And above the usher's office is the private residence. And by the way, if you've been in the White House, if you've been on that eight-minute tour because they push you through pretty quick. Right. right before you leave the front door to go out in the North Portico, if you look right to your left, right. to your left, uh, behind that mahogany door with those mirrored windows, that's the usher's office. So we're right, we're the last office serving the president that's still located in the actual house of the president. In right. The house itself. So I was telling about the uh, universal gym. I could hear from my office, I could hear the clanking of when he was doing bench presses. And, you know, I had a full universal gym with all the apparatus. And the universal gyms were, you know, what was it, 1970s, I guess. I, right, right. They replaced by all this really cool stuff now. But the reason I'm telling you the story President Reagan increased his shirt size by three sizes. Really? Because the mass, his chest was big and his shoulders were big. It's amazing. Wow. So he, he was in great shape. Um, but, but which actually ended up being a problem for him because when he had Alzheimer's, 
sadly, it took longer for him to die because he was physically he was in such great shape. He was in good shape, yeah. yeah, yeah. But but back to uh, special moments. I write I write about a lot of them in my book. But probably the most special moment I ever had was one week after George Bush lost to Bill Clinton. It was exactly one week later. It was Veterans Day. And President and I, as we often would do, and, and First Ladies, we were walking around the South Grounds. There's a driveway that goes around the South Lawn. Mm -hmm. It was dark. And the President would say, hey, walk with me. And, you know, talk about baseball. You talk about a lot of things. Uh, this particular night, he said, I want to go to the Vietnam Memorial tonight. It's the 10th anniversary of the Vietnam Memorial. And he says, you know, they read names. They're, 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 there's spouses of the, the, the guys that lost their life there. Right. They read their names at, at a podium at the wall. And I said, well, that sounds nice. And he says, I don't want to show up the new guy. I just looked at him because I, I don't want to do, I don't want any press. I don't want anybody knowing I'm doing this because I'm doing it for me. And I don't want to do anything that's going to make headlines over the new president. So I said, that, that sounds wonderful. And there was an agent walking four feet behind us. He called the agent up. He said, hey, um, I want to go to the Vietnam Memorial at midnight, the anniversary of the, of the wall. And uh, I don't want to motorcade. I just, you know, one car, two cars max. And the agent said, yes, sir, I'll, I'll bring a team in. And the president looked at him and said, no, you're not bringing a team in. Look, <laughs> he said to the guy, what would you do if I had a heart attack? Are you going to wait to bring a team in? <laughs> And the agent said, no, sir. He said, good. Set it up. So typically, my hours, I cover the awake hours of the president. And with the Reagans, it was always really easy if you're working nights because right. they went to bed at 1030. It was done. Um, the Bushes varied a little bit and the Clintons. Bill Clinton would be up till 3 a.m. I, I know. Yeah. That, yeah. So um, back to President Bush. So he goes back inside. And I'm, I'm doing some stuff in my office and normally I'm gone at 10 o'clock because they'll call me up and Mrs. Bush will say, go home to your family. Right. Out of here. And there's some things I do to shut down the White House and I go home. I'm on call that night. So about quarter of midnight, I hear the elevator go up to the private residence. So I run out and I get in the elevator because it automatically opens on the floor next to the usher's office as a mm -hmm. security measure. So there's a, like a 10 second stop where I jump in the elevator and I get up and I go up the elevator. Mrs. Bush comes and the president are there and, and Mrs. Bush comes on the elevator. She goes, what are you still doing here? And I said, oh, I've got all kinds of work I've been working on in my office. And she just rolled her eyes and she says, do you know what Pops wants to do? <laughs> president Bush. And I said, yes, I do. And she says, we're going to go to the wall. I said, that's great. So before we do that, we're going to take a walk. I said, Okay, so I just walked out and stood at the South Portico outside on the on the driveway while they right. walked. I wanted them to have their freedom. I didn't always want to walk with them, right? Right. So they do one lap and they come around and they're going to do another lap. Mrs. Bush looks at me and says, would you like to come with us? And I didn't know if she meant walk around the, the driveway or come with them to the Vietnam Memorial. Right. So she meant the memorial. And I said, oh my gosh, yes, I, I'd love to. So we, we walk up, there's two cars, and I figure I'm in the backup car with the agents. So I start hanging that way. She goes, no, 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 you're riding with us. Wow. And so they get in the car in the back seat of the giant Lincoln, and there's a little flip seat, jump seat, yeah, yeah. behind the passenger yep. seat. She flips it down. She goes, sit here. So I was knee to knee with them as we're driving. The only disappointment I had is they didn't use lights or sirens. All right. That's the... 
Look, as a native Washingtonian, you live for the lights and sirens, <laughs> folks. That's a motorcade. That's when you got when you know you are in in the moment. That's yeah. <laughs> so we, we we go out to the White House very quietly. We go down and and I tell him, I said, this will be my first time to the memorial. And he looked at me, and said, oh my gosh, we can't believe you haven't been there. So we get to the uh, get up to the Lincoln Memorial and we return and we park and they get out. Now, the president's wearing a leather aviator jacket. Really looks cool. Mrs. Bush is wearing a black raincoat. It was cool, but not cold. There was no moon, no stars, and there's no press lights. So you've got this couple, and I gave them like five feet in front of me. Right. And they're, they're walking towards the, the memorial. And the president sees all these guys walking, these vets. They're wearing you know denim, and they got uh, all kinds of leather and stuff and chains. And they're walking away. They're kind of a rough crew. And he's saying as they walk by, he goes, thanks for what you did. And they just keep walking. And one guy, he slaps one guy on the back. And this guy turns around like he's annoyed. Who? And then he realizes, because by the time the guy got even with me, because I was walking, right. he's telling his buddies, that's the president. <laughs> so the president makes it up to the stage. There's maybe two or 300 people in, in the audience. And he, he asked this lady, and she was so honored to have him read the name of her husband. She was getting ready to read it. So she gave him the sheet and he, he read 10 names and then they exited. And by the time they got to the other side of the stage, there was a big crowd lined up. You know, these vets wanted to. Sure. sure. So the president's signing autographs. And, and I remember this one guy came up in a wheelchair and he had a big red beard. And uh, the, the president, he asked the president, would you sign my vest, my, my leather, my denim vest? And the president said, sure. And I remember the president saying, if you can move your beard two inches. <laughs> <laughs> so we get back in the limo. We're going to go back to the White House. And they're, they're talking a little bit. But the president's kind of lost. You know, he's kind of staring. And, and actually, I saw a tear running down his cheek. And, and we're, we're leaving the scene. And Mrs. Bush is saying, and they just that evening before this, they'd gone to uh, Union Station where Bob Dole, Senator Dole, right. had a big ceremony for the president. And so Mrs. Bush says to her, her husband, she goes, tell Chris about all the nice things Bob Dole said about you tonight. And the president's just looking out the window. He's ignoring her. And then she looks at him and sees what's going on. She looks at me. She goes, okay, I'll tell him. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, that was the... I think that was the first time I'd ever gone anywhere out of, outside of the White House with the president and first lady. And uh, so we got back. It was, you know, 1230 at night or almost it was late. And what do you I mean, what do you miss about those times? What do you miss about? I mean, moments like that, obviously, are profoundly compelling um, in in how you see the worth of your work. Um, and the appreciation of that work by the first family, because it is a very personal service that you provide. Um, it is on behalf of the country. How, how do you? How do you? What do you miss about it? And when you sit back and reflect on it now, uh, what do you think about those times? Well, I was so fortunate to be in situations where I got to witness things that no normal human gets to see, and and I guess Michael, you know, I. I've spent many years in project management and all these things after, after the White House. And where you have these project deadlines, there's a lot of pressure. Well, at the White House, the pressure is immediate. The pressure is immediate when President Reagan calls me and says, General Scowcroft or General uh, Crow is coming over. 
and he needs an easel. Whenever a crowd needed an easel, somebody was going to get bombed. <laughs> so, but that's just a little example of, of how um, immediate uh, you have you have to respond, and there's never a no to the president or first right. lady. Said we will we will get it done, and just having kind of being on edge like that is 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 actually very invigorating. So I miss that. I miss uh, being able to help. You know, make a difference. And, and it was kind of like you know I'm the guy in the shadows that that right. gets things done. So were there were there scary moments in those shadows? I mean, I can imagine the day Reagan was was shot. Well, you I, you were, yeah. Fortunately, I I not you started. were there after that. Yeah, you were there after that. I think. But, uh, during the Gulf War, you know, we went 24-7. We were there all night. And I was taking Situation Room bulletins up to the president. Right. And uh, when the scuds started hitting, uh, going towards Israel, remember the president, you know, this this was 1990s. This is how far back technology was. So I'm watching, I'm flipping from CNN in my office in the ushers. I'm flipping from CNN to, to CBS. I'm getting all the news right. And I'm upstairs talking to the president. He goes, what's the latest report on the scuds? And I said, well, I can tell you what CNN and CBS are saying, because that's <laughs> what I want to hear. So, I mean, the president's got his, his total security staff. He's got the Joint Chiefs. He's got the Pentagon. And he's right. asking me, what's the latest on the scuds? <laughs> but times like that were, it, it wasn't, it was tough because we were in a, in, a, in a war situation. But what was really tough was seeing the, the, um, the price it took on the president, you know? Yeah. I mean, he didn't sleep. Um, and, and the toll, I should say that it took on him. It, it was really, really difficult. Are, are there any, uh, so now you, you've got, and, and, and I want to get, because I think it kind of sets up what you've done narratively with the new book, yeah. which is a wonderful murder mystery and, and, you know, all the, all the intrigue of, you know, dark, wet streets in Washington, DC. <laughs> Um, which I want to get into, but and and, I, and and the reason I want to have this conversation first because I think it animates what you write next in in the new book. So folks knowing the the intricate details and background and experiences inside the White House, it, it gives not just color but texture to mm -hmm. the story in Who Killed the President. Yeah. Um, so when you, when you're looking about, when you're looking at that time and you're writing for this time, what, what do you see as, um, outdated now? I mean, things, protocols, procedures, you've mentioned the technology, you know, today we've got a cell phone that you could have said, well, Mr. President here, take a look. Right. <laughs> right. Um, then you were like, well, CNN said, and or, or you know, they just reported on on ABC or CBS because there was no there was no MSNBC or no Fox, and um, at that time, right. um, what seems outdated to you when you look back on on that now? Well, that's an interesting question. Let me let me let me respond this way and see if this helps. Um, the White House thrives on the unknown. As far as the security of the of the, of the complex and, and what the capabilities are, and um, in fact, I touch a little bit on that in this book, "Who Killed the President." I think a lot of the technology's been improved, but some of the procedures haven't been. Mm. And and uh, I was standing standing next to um, uh, what was Clinton's uh, sec Treasury Secretary um, from Texas. Um, oh. 
who ran for president. Um, I was standing next to him after the uh, the plane that crashed. I, this was years ago. There was a plane, a, a kid crashed a plane into the White House. And oh, I remember that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Was it Benson? No, it wasn't Benson. What was his name? But anyway, I'm standing next to the secretary. And by At that time, this was before Homeland Security. So Treasury was in charge of the Secret Service. Right. And um, Lloyd. Benson. Yeah. Benson, I think. All right. So Benson. the press are yelling questions. Mr. Secretary, how close did the White House come to launching their, their missiles, you know, anti-aircraft missiles? And um, he just, he, he said it was under consideration. And I'm looking at him and said, there ain't no missiles up there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there might be now. I was there a long time ago, but I'm saying right, right. there are no so, missiles up there. So, so my point is, and the Secret Service told me, it says, yeah, the, the outside, they, they just fear, they don't know our capabilities. And uh, so they, we thrive on that. Because well, it, it, you know, it's, it, and it really, you know, a lot of that obviously changes after 9-11. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so there, there are those elements and aspects of it that make it um, that much more intriguing how we dealt with and existed with threats back then right. in the late 80s, 90s, um, and how we exist and deal with those threats today. Uh, and, and particularly those threats to the president, which um, we want to get into uh, in the new book. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking to uh, author and former White House usher, uh, Christopher Emery. Uh, more with Chris right after this. All right, America, you asked for it. Or maybe you didn't. But either way, we have to talk. You're just in kind of a crazy place right now, Mr. and Mrs. USA. So we're going to sit down a couple of times a week and work it out between us. The way Americans do on a podcast hosted by Beowulf Rockland. Weird name. Weird news. Weird politics. Weird country. Facepalm America. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Welcome back, everybody, to the Michael Steele podcast. We're having, I, I love these Washington conversations, this inside Washington stuff, because it, you know, having grown up in the city, literally about four or five miles from the White House, um, it, it, it's, that was always part of my playground. My dad, every time we drove by the White House, he never failed to stop, slow down in front of the White House. You could do that then in what right. is now the plaza in front of the White House and get out and take me to the fence and show me where the president lives. So I've always had this kind of really interesting intrigue and insight uh, about, about the building and the people in the building. And you've now written a book, your second, um, uh, White House, excuse me, White House Usher, Who Killed the President, in which you, um, you sort of bring a lot of that intrigue uh right right to the table which i love so just to give folks a flavor of here here's the plot as 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 uh, chris has set it up 
The world is rocked by the sudden death of the president of the United States. Almost a shocking detail soon, almost a shocking detail soon emerge implicating a member of the White House usher's office. The evidence seems overwhelming and the case is soon considered as open and shut. If only the rest of the world knew how much more was going on behind the scenes. Now, read how Chief Usher Bartholomew Winston, a 50-year veteran of the White House, works with investigators to uncover the truth, even if that means diving headfirst into dangerous political waters to find it. Ah, I love a good dangerous <laughs> water story in D.C. It is so much fun. Tell us about this book um, and and what what inspired the thinking behind it? I love the backdrop. The, the, I mean, like, as you've just described, the closeness of the White House usher to the first family, mm -hmm. the role they play, and then to suddenly have in this book uh, the principal suspect be possibly the usher himself. Oh, I had so much fun with this. And, and, and it really is a whodunit, okay? Uh, okay, I'll give you one hint. The usher didn't do it, okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I loved writing this because it was pure imagination with fact of, of, of knowledge of what goes on inside the White House. And, and by the way, I should mention, all the scenes in the White House are absolutely authentic. Now, the characters are, are fiction. Wow, okay. But, but, but everything that takes place is exactly how the protocol... Uh, there's even a scene where uh, I'm not giving away too much where an assistant usher is uh, is asked by the vice president, a female, at a state dinner. Uh, she's kind of bored at this dinner and, and she says, I've got a challenge for you. And he goes, I love challenges. She goes, get me out of the White House without anybody knowing. <laughs> and, he, and he does. And he does. And that's in the book. Um, did that actually happen at some point? That I can't say, but the uh, the ah. the way the way it was done um, was was possible, and uh, at, at least in the in the time I was at the White House, I'm sure they've corrected all these things, right? Right. <laughs> but the book is so much fun. There's there's lots lots of twists and turns. There's a lot of action. Um, there's some foreign uh, entities involved uh, where you might expect, and um, it's just I, I absolutely adore the characters. Uh, Bartholomew Winston, for example, a fabulous, fabulous character. He uh, has uncanny resemblance to Morgan Freeman. Ah, okay. Which, which actually, there's a story I write in here that he's at a uh, uh, the social office in the Reagan White House decided to have uh, Winston. Everybody calls him Winston. Uh, come to a party, a, a private party the Reagans would have, and just walk around with a drink because everybody would think he was Morgan Freeman. <laughs> so so he does he does this but the trick was on him because morgan freeman was invited to the party was actually there <laughs> so so there's a lot of lighthearted fun in this book but there, it's obviously very serious the president's actually been assassinated he was he was poisoned in the white house and um you know everybody from the usher to the uh chef to others are, are the the white house physician to others are, are considered as suspects and um of course, there's this this group led by Winston uh, that's working with a, a couple other folks trying to really find out what happened. And uh, it, it, it's very exciting. I've gotten good reviews on it. No, that's that, that that's great. I, you know, I'm already I'm already thinking I can't wait to see the movie because yeah. you know, or, or the it would make a great movie or the Netflix, the Netflix uh, series, you know, yeah. it's, just, it's just kind of 
you know, Winston had become, you know, you know, White House usher by day, detective by night kind of deal. I love well, I should, it. I should mention, I'm, I'm now working on uh, who shot the speaker. Who shot the speaker? And that'll be out this year. And that's also another whodunit. Um, and some of the same characters make it. It's almost a sequel. I mean, some of the same characters are in both books. So Interesting. Sort of, you know, sort of playing off of the, the resolution of that, which had a had a sort of tail wagging in another direction towards... Uh, but, you know, Michael, I, I spent eight years in the White House. I spent eight years on Capitol Hill. And uh, when I was on Capitol Hill with the architect of the Capitol, we were also responsible for the Supreme Court. Right. So there's a pattern to my book writing. You know, we're going to who killed the president, who shot the speaker. Next one's going to be who killed the chief justice. Interesting. <laughs> Yeah. And, there, you know, that that's a hot topic in our politics today, which, you know, really speaks to, um, you know, the, the nature of our, our politics. And when you look at, for example, your experience as an usher, the writing of the story, which sort of details in the context of a whodunit, um, the, the, the day in the life of the individuals in, in that work in the White House, who are part of the president's retinue, who are uh, part of his uh, security and all of that. How, how, did, you, how did you see, um, because we have mutual friends uh, who were still in the White House uh, during the Trump years, <clears throat> which was a very kind of topsy-turvy um, uh, experience, probably a lot like Clinton's in one sense, but not so much in another. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. a lot like, in the sense that this was very different, you know, particularly given the sort of state kind of traditional approach of the Obamas and then you've got Clinton. I mean, uh, you've got um, uh, Trump, very much the state traditions of, you know, Reagan and Bush. And then you've got Clinton, who was kind of like, you know, a good old boy. And like you said, a younger sort of vibe and all of that. How did how did you see that? What what were some of the concerns, you know, scariness or just, you know, operationalizing the 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 day to day uh, for the first family for a president who was so asymmetrical in his presidency? I, it's really tough. Um, and and I figured out the other day that there's still one person left that I was I was there. I left there 29 years ago. Wow. There's still one person left from when I was there. You know, the, the staff is so professional and, and, and that comes out actually in the murder mystery. You'll, you'll, you'll see a lot of the staff interacting with, with the, uh, the new president, which happens to be a woman. Um, so it, it, you see uh, they're, they're very professional. And, and actually, you know, I've met seven presidents and I've actually worked with folks. Uh, there was a guy in the White House when I was there that worked, uh, remember seeing FDR and Churchill in the Rose Garden. Wow. Wow. <laughs> but it's, wow. it's interesting because he was a great guy and, and asking him, you know, who's your favorite? And, uh, you know, the pretty much favorite over the years was Truman. Everybody kind of liked him because he was easy and play cards and, you know, he's right. Um, it, and, and some of the other, uh, you know, the Camelot, the, the Kennedys, the staff weren't that crazy about him. Uh, they were a little aloof. Interesting. And Johnson, you know, Johnson was just, a, oh man, he was tough. A little story. Um, Eisenhower had the farm in Gettysburg, in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, right. that he'd go to. He would uh, ask the carpenters and electricians and plumbers if they had time, if they could come up and help him with some stuff, and he'd pay him. 
President Johnson did the same thing. Well, he didn't ask. He said, you'll be at my ranch in Texas. And he didn't pay him. <laughs> but each each of the families are so different. But yeah, you difference between Democrats and Republicans, right? <laughs> That's a good example, actually. <laughs> uh, you know, the staff and, and some of the like the, the butlers are the front line. They're the, those are the guys in the trenches that, that are always up there with the family. And, you know, they have they have feelings, they have opinions, but you would never know it. And we never talk about stuff like that. So it, it's just, you know, we we serve uh, the, the president. And, and yes, um, you know, there's a there's a there's a butler uh, named George Haney who once joked with Mrs. Bush says, um, Presidents come and go, but George Haney will always be here. <laughs> well, and there and there is there is a truth to that. Uh, there's a real truth to that um, um, because there are, I mean, there are these men um, and women who serve and have served for a long time, and and you know, I think that was part of the the movie The Butler, and mm-hmm. and, and you know how how these individuals lives yeah revolve around the president and the first lady and their families but also how those individuals presidents and first ladies and their families revolve around individuals like yourself uh like you described that moment with barbara bush like hey you want to come with us yeah um and that's that's a very special intimate moment that's just not barbara being Oh, let me just be nice and make an offer. There is uh, an appreciation of the fact that you are with them, and you're part of their their life in that house. And there'd be no different than if uh, an in law or a cousin came and stayed with them. You know, you become yeah. part of the family in many respects. Do you find that? How do people in your position appreciate or not appreciate that? I mean, do some people just say, hey, it's a job, I do it? And are others like really get wrapped up in in the moment with the, with the first family? I think I think everybody stays very involved. I, I don't know if there's ever any uh, normalcy to this thing. Um, but you're always, you know, and not all staff are accepted by uh, by first families as we Yeah, know. I can imagine. I went to a got, got any good stories there? <laughs> well, yeah, I would, we'll, I'll be happy to share one. It's in, in my memoir. But um, I went to Marlon Fitzwater's uh, book signing. He wrote one of his last books, and Marlon is with a former press secretary. Right. Great guy. Well, I got there, and I was a little timid because I hadn't seen these guys in a long time. And um, I see Marvin Bush. He was the closest to my age, and we were had fun in the White House. Uh, he's talking to a. a four or five people and I'm standing off in the distance and he sees me and he stops talking and he says to the group, he says, I want you to meet my mother's favorite son. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you, mean, you, you mean you got, you beat out, you beat out uh, Jeb, huh? There you yeah. go. <laughs> but I, th- I think, you know, the, 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 certainly the staff of the, of the butlers and the ushers um, and, and, so the butlers work for the ushers. So, you know, right. they're the ones with the, the, all the full-time access and, and often, often time access. And um, yeah, it takes a, a special person to be able to adapt and, and uh, adjust and, 
and so is the president in 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 who killed the president um uh a compilation of the presidents that you've worked for um, yes well how, the, how is that character formed what, what attributes um can you point to to say yeah she's a little bit like clinton here and a little bit like bush there etc well i can tell you this the uh, the president that was assassinated was a very reagan like uh you you had a big problem with with the soviets and and now the russians and 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 he was uh, he was his polling numbers were very good that's discussed in the book uh the vice president very young dynamic uh who happens to look a little bit like demi moore uh-huh uh, she, her her polling numbers are outstanding, and and she's a rock star. I mean, she's a, a Naval Academy grad. She's 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 a, uh, a she was a pilot. Uh, she's a three term uh, congresswoman, and uh, she's a dynamic speaker, wildly popular on both sides. I mean, they, right. they just love her. And uh, but you get to see the real person, and and she has a very big dark side, right? As you learn in this book, um, and and she's. Uh, yeah, I'm not answering your question because you asked me which 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 president would would that person remind me of. Um, I would probably say it reminds me of someone that never became president but lived in the White House. Interesting. Um, <laughs> the first lady, actually, yeah, yeah. Mrs. Clinton, a little yeah. bit of. Um, but uh, <laughs> as you read the book, you'll you'll see uh, you'll you'll be very interested in this character. I'm not going to say you're going to admire this person, but you're going to. You're going to be surprised by what you learn. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Well, look, I'm I'm all I'm all stoked um, and excited about about reading it, and 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 I'm really excited that you could come on and share a little bit of the insights to this story um, because it really it's not just uh, uh, a a murder mystery who done it but it, it really is kind of an ongoing narrative of your work um in the white house in behalf of of the american people and as you know sharing you know the protocols and and the sort of you know sort of that other side of the relationship with these uh important figures and how human they are and how much they get caught up in in things and and to be a witness to that is is fascinating as hell man. that that is just an amazing amazing story to be able to tell that i was i was really lucky i was really my whole career how did you how did you get the job how did i mean you I know mean, people always your, say your background is your back i mean you weren't you weren't groomed to be the usher at the white house so. no, i was i was I, I was an information technology yeah that's, i thought you were back in a, um, you were a tech guy back in the day so i was actually working in greenbelt maryland and one day as a programmer, they call them coders now. They even change the name. But I was writing computer programs. And I had a copy of the Washington Post from the previous Sunday. And I'm just looking at it at lunchtime. I see this ad. And I say, Executive Office of the President, Office of Administration, Reagan White House, in search of computer automation specialist. Now I'm thinking, man, I've got to get a rejection letter from the White House. How cool would that be? <laughs> right? I actually printed out my resume. And this was 1985. So it was on a dot matrix printer. I still have it. I have the. I found it in the archives. The, the I letter, love it. Letter. And my letter was all in caps. <laughs> no. Yeah. So I, I mailed. But you it. were screaming. You were screaming your qualifications <laughs> to the president. So this was August eighty five, or September or August of eighty five. I mailed it in, 
And I was thinking, I can't wait to get this letter because I'm going to show my buddies in the office. Look who's writing to me, right? Oh I wouldn't let goodness. him see the letter, just the letterhead, the White House. So I forgot about it until uh, December one day when the phone rang at home. We're at dinner and my stepdaughter answers the phone. Her eyes get really big as she hands me the phone. The phone's one of those wall phones. you know. Oh, I remember cord. with the long cord, yeah. She hands me the phone and she says, it's the White House. I'm thinking, what? So I thought, should I, who should I answer this as? I could be Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, I could do a funny, you know, this is Jimmy Carter. I could do somebody or Ronald Reagan. Um, I answered, hi, this is Chris Emery. And the lady started reading for my resume. And I thought, this is real. I love it. So I actually, I interviewed, this was in uh, December. I interviewed uh, early January and they hired me. And I started, uh, I started mid-January, 1986. And for the first year, I was in the office of the president. And then I ended up getting into the job where I managed the White House residence, the home of the first family. Right. I, because they had an opening and I was doing some work over there. And, and, and I ended up getting that job. But yeah, everybody says, who do you know to get your job? And I said, I didn't know anybody. Right. I just, I just sent in a resume because I saw an <laughs> ad in the newspaper. <laughs> so, so, so my, plan, my plan for a joke backfired. I, I never got the rejection letter. Never got through. Yeah, but you got a little bit better than that, right? And yeah, that, and that's that's how a good story ends. That that is wonderful, man. Well, Chris, I appreciate you coming on, man, and taking some time with us and sure. sharing sharing the insights. Uh, the book is White House Usher: Who Killed the President. Uh, it's out now. Grab a copy. Sit back with a glass of vino and enjoy it. It, it is it is a great Washington who done it. Um, you will, you guys will, will love it. You can follow Chris, uh, on Twitter at white house usher and, um, you know, track some of the things he's doing as he's getting ready to write a, a new book or is in the process of writing a new one. I'm a third uh, of the way through it. And I was working on it right before we started this, this call. So, uh, I should mention my book is also available. The, the, the murder mystery is also available in, uh, audible. Ah, and yes. Reason, reason I pushed that is there's so many characters in this book, and the narrator was so good. There's a scene in my book that I actually flash back to something that occurred in the in the Nixon White House. It's a great story, which is true. Um, but the narrator does Nixon better than Nixon. I mean, this guy is great. So if you, <laughs> if you like Audible, if you're driving a lot or you know walking a lot, get get the Audible version. As you mentioned, my first book's in Audible also. Yep, and I was going to say the the first book that started the storyline was uh, White House Usher Stories from the Inside uh, by Chris Emery. Uh, check out both books. Um, get the Audible. I love the Audible too. I, I love yeah. particularly when you've got good narration. Yeah, it just it just great. draws you further into it, and you actually feel like you're talking or at least listening to the candidate of candidates mm -hmm. to the to the uh, the characters in in the book. So. But uh, Chris, I wish you all the best with it, man. Thank you. And uh, keep writing and we'll keep reading. I really appreciate it, Michael. I, I'm so glad to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you too. You take care of yourself. All right. uh, folks, that does it for our little bit of time together. I really hope you got a lot out of this. It was a great conversation with Chris Emery. Again, check out the book, uh, White House Usher Who Killed the President. Uh, it's out now. Get the audible version as well <laughs> if you like that. And, um, you know, check us out on Twitter at Michael Steele, the podcast at Steele underscore podcast and do the download thing. Tell your friends about what we're doing over here. We're having a lot of fun. It's just good conversation and 
Uh, every once in a while, we like to bring some stuff that you otherwise wouldn't know about or hear about. And uh, this is one of those because it's it's good stuff out there. And we want, want you to be a part of uh, at least understanding the rest of the story. And Chris has got some good stories to tell, and it's all in the book. So until next time, be safe, be well, and God bless. All right, America, you asked for it. Or maybe you didn't. But either way, we have to talk. You're just in kind of a crazy place right now, Mr. and Mrs. USA. So we're going to sit down a couple of times a week and work it out between us. The way Americans do. On a podcast. Hosted by Beowulf Rockland. Weird name. Weird news. Weird politics. Weird country. Facepalm America. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Trying to grab all the groceries in one trip? Oof, not how you would have done that. You know sometimes less is more. Like when you drive less and save with the USAA annual mileage discount. USAA. Get a quote today. Hello, good friends, and welcome to a very special edition of the Bill Press Pod, where we combine our two favorite things in life, politics and food. Yes, we do that also with the help of Alex Prudhomme, the great nephew of Julia Child, who co-authored with the great Julia her last book, My Life in France. Now, Alex is out with his own latest book, a fascinating and fun look at food and politics through the prism of the White House. It's called Dinner with the President. From George Washington through Donald Trump, Alex takes us into the kitchen and the dining rooms of almost all the presidents whose palates are as different as their politics. But, as Alex points out, what's important is not just what they like to eat, from squirrel stew to cottage cheese to Texas barbecue. What's important is how what's served at the White House can actually set a trend for the entire country and inspire us to eat healthy, or not so much. Alex Prudhomme joins us today for a rare romp through the White House kitchen. Alex Prudum, good to have you with us, and welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be here. Uh, congratulations on the book, Dinner with the President, Food, Politics, and the History of Breaking Bread at the White House. Uh, wonderful read, wonderful book, lots of great stories uh, about the palates of our presidents, Alex. Now, I don't want to dump on the whole purpose of the book, but my first question is, like, who cares? Right. Why is what presidents eat important? Because the White House is the most powerful house in the world. And people forget that not only is it the locus of the U.S. government, but it is also a functioning home. Um, and therefore, uh, the food that is served there is uh, arguably some of the most important of the world. And there are food-related events going on there every day uh, from a 
you know, simple picnic on the on the great lawn to the uh, state dinners to uh, the the meals that the first family have up in the private quarters, and all of these things uh, are important. They send messages out to various constituencies, and uh, the public pays attention. Um, you know, when the president eats healthy food, a lot of the public starts doing that. And when the president eats less healthy food, they feel like they have license to do that too. So. Yeah. I mean, you say up front, uh, and I hadn't thought of it this way. I've spent a lot of time around the White House as a reporter and uh, often as a guest. But the White House runs on food, really. Right. It's it's a as very as much all of our homes do. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> uh, you know, it's true. But even more so there to the to the 10th power, it's, um, you know, they're constantly teas and cocktail parties and dinners and breakfasts and cabinet lunches. And, you know, there's a. Um, uh, first time I visited, I got taken to lunch at the Navy mess down on the, on the ground floor, right next to the situation room. Mm -hmm. And it must be the most unusual cafeteria in the world. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton liked to go by and get some, uh, takeaway breakfast from there, but you, you're sitting in there with generals and, and, uh, congressmen and, uh, cabinet members. And it's, it's kind of a fabulous place and it's all decorated like a, um, presidential yacht. Uh, which those yachts no longer exist, but the Navy crew um, staffs the Navy mess. Um, and, um, you know, the food is pretty darn good, but it's it's right there in the ground floor of the White House. Have president, you said something a little earlier, have presidents made a point of trying to eat healthy so that Americans do eat healthy or will eat healthier? I think you have to take it administration by administration. Um, someone like Barack Obama and Michelle Obama, they made a big point of eating healthily. Um, Hillary Clinton did. Bill, not so much, although he came around <laughs> in the end. Um, and someone like Donald Trump uh, proudly does not eat healthily. He eats a lot of fast food and, and steak. So um, it really depends on the administration. It's hard to make generalizations. Right. But Michelle Obama, you mentioned, uh, she did have the White House garden, right, which provided a lot of vegetables for the for the White House. Um, I believe it was the Clintons that had a rooftop garden, thanks That's to Alice right. Water. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did any presidents have animals that they raised for food? Well, you know, the, the funny thing about the Obama garden is that people sort of saw this as a radical act. But when you go back in time, it was a very traditional thing at the White House to have a garden plot and animals. Um, my favorite story is that uh, a couple of administrations, they kept a cow in the White House to provide <laughs> fresh milk. Um, uh, later, they moved the cow out to her own barn. I think the Tafts were the last one to have a cow. Um, but uh, Calvin Coolidge kept a chicken coop out back. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> but he, his chickens tasted like mint. And they discovered they had built the coop on top of Teddy Roosevelt's mint patch, <laughs> which he had planted for his mint juleps. So, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of these guys uh, grew up on farms <laughs> and uh, they, they liked having their uh, vegetables and animals around. Well, what I didn't realize until I read your book is that while some administrators, some first ladies and presidents uh, have tried to assert, you know, or establish that. We should we could eat healthier and should as Americans. They got a lot of pushback from the food industry, right? I mean, big food is pretty powerful. Very much so. It's a huge business, and and as we discovered uh, during COVID, uh, there's been a lot of consolidation in the business, so that only a few of the big players are really controlling most of the food supply. 
And they were threatened uh, in some way by the Obama garden. They felt that uh, they called it an organic garden, which it was not. There's a very specific uh, set of rules you have to follow to be called organic. They just called it a vegetable garden, the White House vegetable garden or the kitchen garden. And, um, you know, the, the, the vegetables grown there um, were used by the Obamas uh, or given to soup kitchens, uh, sometimes served to guests. And it was really a teaching tool for people. Um, and it was uh, it was too bad that there was so much pushback against fresh uh, vegetables because uh, we do have an obesity crisis in this country, and and they were trying to address that. I want to be careful here. I'm not trying to say that the role of the woman of the house is in the kitchen, but at the same time, didn't the first ladies have a lot to do with running the house and running the kitchen? Absolutely. Uh, it's not a paid job to be the first lady, but it really is a job and it can be all consuming. Um, some women love the role of first lady and others didn't. Um, I think the first kind of proto-modern first lady uh, was Dolly Madison. Mm -hmm. uh, her husband, James, uh, was a Virginia planter who was interested in politics, not in food. But Dolly understood the political value of food. And she would host these uh, raucous Wednesday night parties um, called Mrs. Madison's Squeezes because you had to <laughs> squeeze it into the room. They were so popular. And um, if you were not invited, that was considered a real diss and you, uh, you were on the outs. And this was an era when Washington, D.C. was a real kind of backwater. And there were these congressmen from all over the place who, you know, usually were kind of lonely bachelors. And and so these squeezes became very important. Um, she took food seriously. Um, then you have someone like uh, Bess Truman, hated being first lady. She would mm. run off to Missouri every chance she got. But she was a very um, astute political analyst and, and really helped Harry uh, behind the scenes. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt uh, had very mixed feelings about being first lady, but during the Second World War, she understood the bully pulpit she had. And so she uh, promoted victory gardens and uh, eating economically, using food stamps. And she used the White House kitchen as a kind of a demonstration platform about mm -hmm. how to eat uh, sensibly uh, and to sort of set an example. Uh, and then you have someone like uh, Jackie Kennedy, who um, raised the bar uh, uh, culinarily. Uh, she uh, based her entertaining uh, at the White House on Louis XIV, the Sun King, um, who intentionally used food in a diplomatic way. And uh, so she did the same. And she used food to lure the best and brightest to the White House and made it kind of the, the it place to be. Um, and through that, um, furthered her uh, husband's agenda in, in, in remarkable ways. And there's a couple of famous parties that they people still talk about. Um, mm -hmm. And um, they, they, she really intentionally used food to kind of seduce people, um, uh, to come along with her husband's platform, um, to get diplomats on board, uh, broker deals, uh, and essentially keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Right. Uh, which gets to the state dinners I want to talk to you about in just a little bit. But first, just a very practical question. Who does the shopping for the groceries? Well, that is a very, I, I got really into that question and I had a hard time finding out. And that's yeah. my purpose. Um, 
you know, in the old days, people all across the country used to send foods to the White House for the president uh-huh. to try. You know, whether it was your your grape jelly that you made, or a giant piece of cheese, or the the, pre- the famous presidential salmon that was sent from Maine every spring, uh, hearkening the beginning of spring. Um, and uh, the, slowly, those things have fallen by the wayside, but particularly because of September 11th. Um, now, anything that's sent to the White House is destroyed. Uh, similarly, uh, it used to be that um, the, the White House would send a truck out and they would just go shopping. And, and nowadays, it's all very secretive. They have certain vendors that they use for the government, quote unquote. So the mm. vendors don't know which branch of government they're their produce is going to, and um, they are kept very quiet. If anybody starts blabbing, they're immediately cut from the list. Um, it's very, very, it's almost impossible to poison the president at this point. Wow. So it's not unlike England where they have, you know, like the butcher to the queen, right? Or the... Uh, no, the- no, they dissuade people from that. Uh, they, you know, and if you start trying to promote yourself, goodbye. Uh- <laughs> uh-huh. Well, of the many, many... Uh, historic dinners at the White House. You talk about uh, a few uh, I wanted to visit with you about. And the first is where you open up. Maybe this wasn't at the White House itself, but in terms of breaking bread at the table for a purpose of achieving a big diplomatic breakthrough, breakthrough. we start with what you call the dinner table bargain that Thomas Jefferson hosted. Tell us about it. Yeah, well, this was uh, a point where very beginning of the country when when uh, George Washington had been in office as president for only a year. Uh, Thomas Jefferson had, was his secretary of state um, and the nation was uh, riven by battles, political battles, because the democracy wasn't really up and functioning yet. It was kind of an idea more than a reality. And um, you had a battle between Alexander Hamilton, the Secretary of the Treasury, and James Madison, who was a Virginia congressman, uh, representing sort of North and South. And uh, the two issues uh, under debate were, number one, how do we repay our revolutionary war debts, i.e., how do we construct uh, a tax system and a U.S. financial system? And number two, uh, where to build the federal capital? Uh, the temporary capital was in New York, uh, and so they were all in New York at that point. And um, uh, their debate had gotten so poisonous that Jefferson was worried that it was going to destroy the young republic. And so he did what he uh, had learned that the French kings do when he was ambassador to Paris, which is he invited the combatants over for dinner to his little house on Maiden Lane, which is now in Greenwich Village. And um, he uh, served this sumptuous meal that was cooked by his slave chef, James Hemings, who had been trained uh, under uh, some of the best cooks in Paris, uh, could speak French, uh, was a wonderful cook. Um, And he put on this dinner um, uh, for these two guys. Um, uh, It began with a a salad with a, a famous Jeffersonian uh, dressing. Uh, it, it moved on to capon that had been stuffed with uh, chestnut puree, uh, mm. and then a, um, a braised beef dish. Uh, all of this served with fabulous wines that he'd brought in back from uh, Europe. Um, and then the pièce de résistance was the dessert, uh, which was kind of a mind-blowing thing. It was cold vanilla ice cream encased Ooh. in a warm puff pastry. Uh, and this is something that Americans had never thought of before, or even 
you know, never tasted for sure. Uh, and, and Jefferson reserved this for very special occasions. And this was one. Um, and he served that with a very special champagne. And so um, he kept the conversation light during dinner. And then afterwards, after over snifters of brandy, they mm -hmm. got down to the political horse trading. And lo and behold, the, the wonderful food and, and wine and conversation had mellowed these two guys who, who couldn't even speak to each other. Uh, and they began to actually um, make a deal. And they both compromised. Um, Hamilton was allowed to impose taxes and construct a financial system. And in return, Madison was given a nominally Southern site for the federal capital, uh, mm -hmm. which is current day Washington, DC. Uh, and it, it was all in secret. Um, but when it was finally uh, exposed, it was, it was known as the dinner table bargain. And it was arguably this one dinner saved the Republic. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, yeah. 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 And there's, and there's some current um, echoes of this. I mean, we're still fighting over taxation and, and the role of the federal government. And some people still don't like Washington, D.C. as the capital. Um, yeah. And uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's uh, uh, Hamilton musical, there's a, there's a whole rap song about this event. It's called uh, The Room Where It Happened. It was one of the, it's the most oh, yeah. the yeah. songs in that show. And it's rapped by uh, Aaron Burr, who was not invited and was green with envy that he wasn't there. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's kind of one of those moments where there's so much coming together all in one room. And I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall there. Too bad that Jefferson didn't host a dinner with Hamilton and Burr. Things might have turned out differently, too. Oh, boy. Can you imagine? Uh, I know. I know. So uh, the, the major... Uh, Food events at the White House, as you indicated earlier, are the state dinners. Uh, if I um, pull correctly from your book, the first state dinner with Ulysses Grant for the King of Hawaii, yeah. first formal state dinner. Yeah. This wasn't just inviting a friend over for dinner. There was a real diplomatic purpose behind this, wasn't there? Well, and economic. Uh, wow. The backstory is that uh, Hawaii at that point was called the Sandwich Islands, and they were their own independent kingdom run by the Merry Monarch, King Kalakaua, a big roly-poly guy who loved to eat. Um, but we had uh, the, the United States had very high tariffs on imported sugar, and Kalakaua desperately needed some income to keep his kingdom going. And so he came to Washington um, essentially on bended knee and asked Ulysses S. Grant um, to please lower the tariffs so that he could start exporting sugar to the states. And Grant thought this was a good idea. Uh, and in return, uh, the U.S. was given access to Pearl Harbor, which is a crucial naval base. And mm. um, some of the uh, Hawaiians were worried that this was the beginning of the end of their kingdom, and they were proven right eventually. Right. Um, and uh, Kalakaua was feted uh, in Washington. There was a big parade and then the state dinner. Uh, he was the first foreign dignitary to be hosted like this. Um, and there was a chef named Valentino Mela, who was a Sicilian and known as the professor because he was such an adept cook and knew so much about culinary history. And uh, sadly, the menu doesn't exist any longer, but we can infer from uh, his previous dinners that there must have been 30 to 35 courses oh. uh, paired with delicious wines. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the descriptions of his food go on and on are very flowery as it sounds amazing. 
Uh, and, and lo and behold, it was a, a very successful event. And, and, you know, the, the, the rough and tumble grants from Missouri, uh, uh, had come to like the, the trappings of, of power in Washington had come to like good food. And, mm. um, uh, and, and they set the, uh, template for, uh, modern day state dinners that still more or less exists along the way they, they set it up. So if you go to France for a state dinner, right, it's going to be Louis XIV, right? If you go to China, it's going to be, I mean, we've talked, we'll talk probably about Richard Nixon, um, mm prepping for this big state dinner in China. But in the, at the White House, is there such a thing as an American cuisine? I mean, do we have an American cuisine that you know is going to be served at the White House? Well, it's interesting. So a state dinner will often have uh, a nod to the guest country, uh, whether it's an ingredient or a wine, you know, say a, uh-huh. a, when Gorbachev came over, uh, the Reagan served him wine from the Russian River Valley, which is excellent wines. Um, or <laughs> uh, when Macron comes, uh, he's often served um, a French, a French Franco-American dish or a, a wine that's made by a French winemaker, but in California or something like yeah, that. Yeah. So that's sort of the foreground. And the background is that there really is a distinct American cuisine, and it goes back to Jefferson and his slave chef, James Hemings. Um, you know, those days, uh, they were cooking over open fire. They used uh, largely uh, British recipes, but French technique, um, indigenous American ingredients like venison and turkey and corn and so on. Um and uh, then the slaves uh, owned spices and herbs and, and their soupçon of their own uh, inspiration. Um, and so uh, the two of them, uh, Jefferson um, and Hemings, had a wonderful combination. He, Jefferson had the, the vision and he had the money and the wherewithal to, to produce these meals. But he- James Hemings was the one who actually did the work in the kitchen and uh, had been trained in Paris. And so the two of them uh, created this kind of fusion cuisine that was first known as Virginia cooking and then later became known as Jeffersonian food. But really, it is uh, the basis for what we now think of as, quote unquote, American cooking, Um, Mm -hmm. still informing us all these years later. Um, and it's just fascinating because it's, it's this melange, it's this, it's right. this um, fusion of global cuisine. Uh, it's worth pointing out, too, that James Hemings was a slave. Uh, and despite um, all his gifts and his contributions to the White House, uh, Jefferson never freed him either. That's re- well, no, that's not true. Uh, oh, I'm actually, sorry. Go ahead. James yeah. Hemings, uh, interestingly enough, when he was in Paris, uh, ah, yeah. uh, he was earning money, uh, because slavery was not, uh, legal at the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he accumulated quite a bit. And then when they came back uh, after the French revolution to the States, uh, Jefferson continued to pay him and Hemings ultimately bought his freedom. Um, and when Jefferson was in the white house, he offered the executive chef job to Hemings, but they couldn't agree on financial terms. Um, and then there's a sort of a tragic ending. Uh, Hemings uh, traveled the world a bit and then um, moved to Baltimore and began to cook at a tavern 
where he also began to drink and drink and drink. Mm. And sadly, he uh, essentially uh, committed suicide in his uh, mid-30s. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's poignant because here's a guy who was ahead of his time. Right. Uh, he could speak French. He, he could write and read, which was unusual for a slave. Uh, he was this wonderful cook. Um, his sexuality may have been fluid. So he just simply didn't fit his era. And he was miserable um, mm-hmm. and uh, neither fully black nor white. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it's understandable and tragic, but I think uh, it would make a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, one other dinner I want to mention before we take a break, and that is October the 16th, 1901, a dinner that Teddy Roosevelt hosted at the White House, uh, which uh, made history and good to talk about this month of Black History Month, too. Yes. To set the scene, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, was not elected. He inherited his presidency after, I think it was McKinley, was shot. So he uh, was a foodie. He ate to great excess, actually. One of the, the very first people he had over was a guy named Booker T. Washington, who was a black academic, um, the first uh, leader of the Tuskegee Institute and uh, a really well-respected man. But the problem is that, that no president had had a black man sit at his dining table as a putative equal um, before. And this simple dinner, uh, uh, there was another guest. It was the three of them. Very simple. It was just mentioned in the, in the papers, the three names. It caused a huge uproar and, and all sorts of horrible vitriol uh, uh, about how... Um, you know, uh, black people should not be allowed in the White House and so on. And uh, although it phrased much more harshly than that. And um, and 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 Roosevelt was taken aback. He, he really respected uh, Washington and and uh, relied on him for advice. And um, and yet even his advisors said that it was a political mistake for him at the time. And and he never repeated it, but he didn't regret it. So it was a very interesting moment. Well, you can tell a lot about the president uh, as to what they eat and what they preferred or what they ordered, what they favored. Uh, let's get into that with a few of the presidents you talk about, Alex, after a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod, uh, and then we'll be right back. And for today's podcast, very fittingly, we're talking about food. Uh, I want to remind you about the great work of the World Central Kitchen uh, under the great Jose Andres. They are everywhere in the world where people need help serving hot meals. Over one million hot meals served so far post-earthquake in Turkey and Syria. And every day still on the ground in Ukraine and in Poland, serving hundreds of, th- of thousands of hot meals every day for the refugees there from the war in Ukraine. The World Central Kitchen doing great work, and they do it with our help. So please go to the website, World Central Kitchen. It's wck.org, wck.org. And join me in sending whatever help you can. The World Central Kitchen, wck.org. We're back with today's podcast. Our guest, Alex Prudhomme, he is the co-author with Julia Child of My Life in France and now author of his great new book, Dinner with the President. Uh, All right. So, Alex, you know what they say. You are what you eat. (laughs) Uh, So we've talked about Thomas Jefferson. Just just one final point on Thomas Jefferson. He was the real only 
I've heard you say epicure among all the presents, right? I mean, he really knew food, he really knew wines, and he really appreciated their value and their power, didn't he, more than anybody else? He did, yeah. He Let's not forget that he was a slaveholder, and he had this wonderful plantation, Monticello, which I recommend everybody visit, uh, because... Um, uh, and so he grew up, uh, he was a natural gourmet. He understood food. He understood the value of the political value of food. He had been the ambassador to Paris. He'd seen how the, the French Kings use food as a way of bringing people together. And he emulated that. And so, uh, he was one of these guys who really understood the diplomatic and political utility. Um, many presidents don't understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, probably the majority don't understand that, which is too bad because it's a missed yeah. opportunity. Um, and my, my pet theory is that those who understand the, the political value of food end up being better presidents. I was surprised to, to learn from your book that the, maybe the one president who enjoyed cooking the most and did, in fact, uh, cook himself the most was Dwight Eisenhower. That's right. I know. I was very surprised to learn that. And, you know, I kind of thought of Eisenhower as America's dad, this kind of square-shaped, black-and-white guy. Well, uh, doing my research, he, was, he became a technicolor kind of mad genius <laughs> to me. He, yeah. was, he was raised on a farm, uh, he learned to hunt and fish and cook from an illiterate woodsman, uh, provided for his family uh, in the military. He kept his troops very well fed, which was one reason they did well at D-Day. Um, after the war, he was the president of Columbia University, and he made headlines by um, publishing his recipe for two-day vegetable soup, which is <laughs> a fabulous creation that I've made. I recommend it. Uh, and then as president, um, he was known as the president who cooks. And he would go up to the roof of the White House and grill steak, or he would uh, grill corn on the cob in the in the cob, um, in the husk. Um and uh, he just loved it, and, and, and to the point where he would force his food on the on journalists who uh, had already eaten because uh, he was so proud <laughs> of whatever he had made. Uh, so I was uh, I was very charmed by uh, learning about Eisenhower. Yeah, uh, I wasn't so attracted to his uh, squirrel squirrel stew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he and James Garfield were known for eating squirrel stew, and probably Abe Lincoln too. You know, anybody who kind of grew up in the in the rural uh, uh, West. Uh, had that kind of thing. So for LBJ and then for the Bushes, it was Texas barbecue, White House style. Right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, barbecue was a big deal for LBJ. Um, it was a, it was the kind of food that had not really been served in the White House too much before him, and he really used it to his advantage. He would he would fly people, particularly European leaders, out to his ranch uh, in Central Texas, and um, he would. Uh, take them on a nice horseback ride to loosen them up. Then he'd um, feed them some ribs uh, or chili, maybe a couple of beers and some some whiskey. And then he'd move in for the kill. He'd say, now uh, you do me a favor. <laughs> so uh, he, used, uh, he used his barbecue very truly, shrewdly. Yeah. He used it on the campaign trail, too. He would have big barbecues wherever he went, including here in New York City. Now, not one uh, whose um, taste in food I've I'm tempted to follow, is Richard Nixon. You point out that he basically had one thing for lunch every day. Yes, it was a sad lunch, uh, and there's a photograph of it in the book. Uh, It was a little dollop of cottage cheese on a pineapple ring. Sometimes he would dress it up with a little ketchup. Uh, (laughs) 
And huh. Gerald Ford also had that same lunch, but not every day Whoa. like Nixon did. Uh, and I find it fascinating. It tells you something about him as a person. Uh, yeah. Food can be unintentionally revealing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think he just liked the sameness and the safety of it. Again, you are what you eat. I think of that, particularly cottage, yeah. cottage cheese and pineapple is bad enough, but with ketchup? Oh, move on. And then <laughs> Bill Clinton. We remember Bill Clinton maybe most because of the Saturday Night Live sketches of his going into the uh, neighborhood McDonald's and eating everybody else's French fries. Um, he loved fast food, didn't he? He, he sure did, uh, notoriously. I mean, I, you remember those images of him, of him on the campaign trail snarfing oh, down yeah. donuts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I know that SNL thing was hilarious. Uh, I, of course, I had to rewatch it when I was writing the book. Um, and, uh, you know, Phil Hartman playing him. Um it was uh, not too far from the truth. You know, he was uh, in, uh, he grew up um, with a kind of a broken family. And he, I think he overcompensated by eating a lot of rich, uh, not particularly healthy foods. Um, but, you know, he had a bad heart and Hillary was very uh, health conscious. And so she hired a chef called Walter Scheib. Who right. Came in, and his remit was to produce healthy modern fusion cooking. It was a new kind of food for the White House. And it was really a new menu for a new era. Uh, You know, we're entering uh, this whole new millennium. And um, it was quite impactful uh, on the public. It was a a way of um, educating people and um, about healthy eating and and in particular the president. And, um, you know, he would invite... uh, uh, heart specialists like Dr. Dean Ornish to the White House to advise them on their menus. And slowly but surely, he eased off of the fast food and eased off of the red meat and the pancakes and all of that and and became healthier and healthier. After he left the White House, he became a vegetarian and then mm-hmm. a vegan. Um, and from what I've heard, he's, he's slipped a little bit on that now. He started to eat uh, some fish and chicken and so on, but um, I can hardly blame him. Um, but he has lost a lot of weight and he's become much healthier and he survived, which was kind of miraculous. And I remember from those times myself that Alice Waters was a big presence at the White House uh, uh, through mutual friends with Hillary. And I think she's the one that really pushed them to put the garden uh, on the rooftop and to hire uh, a chef who was going to create better food and better policies at the Department of Agriculture and the FDA. Uh, had a yeah, big that's absolutely there. right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for those who don't know, Alice Waters is a, uh, a chef uh, who runs a famous restaurant in Berkeley, California called Chez Panisse, but she's also a food policy advocate um, and gadfly, and she has long pestered the White House to, to <laughs> mm-hmm. not only promote its food better, but eat more healthily. And uh, she was a very important um, resource for Hillary Clinton and Michelle Obama uh, in, in their in their food endeavors. Uh, and Barack Obama was basically an omnivore, wasn't he? Uh, or he isn't was. he, I should say. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, people forget that he was partially raised in Hawaii, but he was also raised in Indonesia. His mother yeah. remarried and they moved mm-hmm. over there. And so he had this wonderful global palate. Um, and people may remember when he went to uh, Hanoi in Vietnam with um, oh, Anthony yeah. Bourdain, and they sat down to eat spicy bun cha uh, pork with noodles, uh, and he was 
uh, Obama was very adept with the chopsticks and was not at all afraid of the spice. Um, and it was a great moment. And it was one of those things, um, a little bit like Donald Trump and his burgers, but where the images of Bourdain and uh, Obama eating bunchad in Hanoi together went viral around the world and, and caused a sensation and really kind of became some of the defining images of his presidency. And the meal cost six dollars. <laughs> yeah, $6. And, and Bourdain <laughs> tweeted, uh, well, I picked up the tab. <laughs> Thanks, Tony. <laughs> All right. So we kind of know what they like to eat. Um, what about alcohol? Was alcoholism, it, it sort of never talked about, but were there presidents who were alcoholics or had a serious problem with alcohol? There were a few. Uh, the most notorious was Ulysses S. Grant. Um, it almost destroyed his military career before the Civil War. Uh, he was a very adept horseman and, and a good soldier, but he had a, a binge drinking problem that came to light when he was separated from his wife and family for extended periods. And he was not drinking for fun. It was really just sort of this manic energy um, that came out of him. And um, he was cashiered, uh, pushed out of the army, but then the civil war came along ironically and, and resurrected him. And this guy, uh, who'd been pushed out ultimately became the head of the U S army, uh, and then the president of the United States. Um, but he had that demon of alcohol on his shoulder his entire life and really fought a brave battle against it. And, um, you know, with, when you're a president, there's so many temptations all the time and he was resolute in, in trying to resist, um, and to my knowledge, he didn't fall off the wagon too much at the White House. Um, and, uh, you know, he'd go to temperance meetings and he really was very outspoken about it, um, which was quite unusual back then and is still unusual. But so he was sort of the worst case scenario. Uh, and finally, uh, you top off your book uh, delightfully with some White House recipes. <laughs> Alex. Yeah, um, I had to do that. I can't talk about all of them, but... Um, what, what what are a couple of your favorites? Well, I only have 10 recipes. They're all things that, that the home cook can do. I kept them pretty simple. I have a couple mm -hmm. of drinks recipes. Um, my favorite of the drink recipes is a reverse martini, which was the favorite of FDRs and also of Julia Childs, uh, which is where you reverse the proportion. So you have one part gin to five parts of vermouth. Um, and of the dishes, I think George Washington would do a, a striped bass on a cedar plank on the grill. And it, it sounds hard, but it's not. It's super easy and it's really delicious. Uh, have um, you done it? Have you done oh yeah. that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And when I was working on the book, I would have dinner parties and I would serve these dishes and test them out on my friends to make sure that they were uh, easy to make and, and good to eat. And, and sure enough, they were. I, so I have to ask you about that. I've always wondered, do you actually put the wood plank on the on the grill itself? Doesn't it catch fire? You do. But the trick is before you do that, you soak the plank in water for a good half an hour or so. Uh -huh. um, and it does burn a little bit, but not too much. And what it does is it imparts this beautiful cedar flavor to the flesh of the fish. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it's a good showstopper. <laughs> I'll bet. Um, and finally, you'd also talk about William Howard Taft's favorite soup, which I have never tried. I've never tried to make it. I've never uh, had it served to me. And that is Billy B. But I've heard people say it's the most beautiful, delicious soup in the world. 
ever. It is, it is gorgeous. And I'm a, I'm a muscle lover. We have a place in Maine and we pick mussels off the rocks and eat them fresh and there's nothing better. And this soup caught my fancy and uh, it doesn't hurt that it has a lot of delicious herbs and a bit of cream in it. Um, and, um, the official recipe calls for removing not only the mussel shells, but also the mussel meat. I keep the mussel meat in mine. Um, and it's, mm. it's, quite uh, straightforward to make and, and really good and, and a beautiful dish to look at. Billy B. So the... Uh, there's a good backstory, which I tell in the in the uh, recipes about that. Right. It is so much fun and so much to learn. Dinner with the President, Alex Prudhomme. And of course, there'll be a link for you to buy your copy of the book in the episode notes to today's podcast. Uh, Alex, thank you for a wonderful read. Thanks for all the research you did. And thanks for uh, spending some time with us today on the Bill Press Pod. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you so much. And as Julia would say, bon appetit. <laughs> bon appetit. Uh, and that's today's podcast with Alex Prudhomme. There'll be a link uh, on the episode notes of this podcast for you to get your own copy of Dinner with the President. It's a fun book, a great read. You will really enjoy it. You'll love it as much as I did. Uh, and again, thank you for joining us. Now, we'll be back on Friday with our regular Reporters Roundtable with all the news, the latest news coming from the week in politics in our nation's capital. Have a great week, everybody. Take care of yourselves. Come back and see us on Friday for Reporters Roundtable, the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.